Well, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Welcome to Vine Community Church. Again, my name is Treb. We are pleased to have you in worship with us. If you are here for the first time, again, we want to reiterate what a pleasure it is to have you with us this morning. We are, are grateful that you are here. We're coming at an exciting time. We started a new sermon, a new fall sermon series a few weeks ago. We're into week five as we've kind of been moving to the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a, a fascinating book. It's, it's a really important book because for a lot of reasons, Paul is setting the church in Ephesus up as his almost prized student. If you were to look at all the churches that Paul had planted, some of the letters that he wrote to those churches, it comes across as Ephesus being one of his most prized students, mainly because he spent a significant amount of his time there. So for at least two and a half, most likely three years, Paul spent in Ephesus preaching and teaching on a daily basis. Um, Started in the temple where he would go every day and just debate with the Jewish leaders until they had enough. And then they rented a big hall down the street. And for every single day for two and a half years, he would gather with other Jews, believers, G uh, Greeks, Gentiles. All the people would just show up to listen and debate and talk. And he did that for two and a half years. And so on a lot of levels, the church in Ephesus is one of the most educated churches that we've ever seen, right? Because not only did they have Paul, but Paul left Timothy. Timothy there as his kind of voice, his spokesperson. Uh, Timothy spent time, once Paul went on to Rome to wait to stand trial before Caesar, Timothy continued Paul's teaching. So it's a very educated, very important church and had a huge impact in the region. And so Paul gives this letter this, that he writes to Ephesus, he gives some deep and real instruction, not, not like, hey, you need to remember to do this, but more like, this is who you are. And this is who you're called to be in the world. And at its very core, the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, is a book about reconciliation. God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ. And that reconciled world is now unified together as the church. From all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all different histories, all different stories, we've been drawn together through Christ to become the church. And the church has got a purpose in the world. And so his entire letter is setting the church up for the fact that they are the hands and feet of Jesus, that they are right and they are ready. And so for the past four or so weeks, we've kind of been opening uh, this letter and introducing ourselves into Paul's setup, his deep theology. And he started off in verse three with this really long section that goes all the way through 14 that we've talked about for the past few weeks. That's a doxology of sorts. And by doxology, I mean it's a, a long, intentional, liturgical setup. A lot of people think it's a prayer. Whatever it is, it doesn't have any punctuation in it. That sentence is one giant, long, run-on Greek sentence, 3 through 14, and it's an intentional setup to remind these readers that they are dealing with the God of the universe, and the God of the universe has done some very specific things. And last week, we looked at one of the, or several of those things that were opened up to us through the grace of Christ. And so Paul's reiterating these things to the church, and he's saying, what is yours, church, as you go out into the world, are some very specific things that you have in Christ's grace that God has opened up to you and has given you in his grace. And we talked about the idea that we have been redeemed, and that redemption was costly. We did this last week, right? So that redemption not only cost Christ his life, which he voluntarily gave up, but grace is costly for us, meaning it should cost us something. And not in terms of acquiring it, but it should cost us death to self. The entire movement of the gospel is me dying to myself, saying yes to Christ. And that that grace following Christ is costly because it can't be about me. 
So we explored this idea of costly grace. We explored this idea of uh, this, this redemption that we have fully. We also talked about the idea that we've been given forgiveness of sins. Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about that in Christ's redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins, actually the forgiveness of transgressions, meaning that even though we have violated God's law, he has distinctly and purposely forgiven us. And, and he actually tells us that it's done with wisdom and understanding. Very intentional grace, not just this sort of blanket of grace, but this sort of surgical forgiveness of this specific sin in your life. And we explore what that wisdom and understanding looks like. And so we're going to be building on some of those building blocks this morning. As we talked about last week, what we have in the grace that is given us through Christ. This morning, we're going to talk about what we have now at the floodgates of that grace are open. What that means for you and me as we look at the world and what it means for us as believers. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at 9 and 10 today. So we're going to pick up in the middle of that section where we left off last week, 7 and 8. We're going to be looking at 9 and 10 this morning. And we're going to talk about what we have now that the floodgates of God's grace have been opened through Christ, what God has given us and granted us access to. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's dive into it together this morning and, and see where the Lord leads us. God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it is living and active. We do not take it lightly. We take our encounters with your word very seriously. And so, Lord, we do believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we open it this morning with deep and true reverence because we know that, Lord, you are speaking to us through its pages, through its words, through its movements. It is the theopunestos, the breath of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. You would teach us. You would instruct our hearts. You would convict us where we need to be convicted. You would empower where we need to be empowered. You would remind where you need to remind but, Lord, that you would move in our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you something. Maybe you've read Ephesians a hundred times. Maybe you've never read it. Wherever you are in that spectrum, just ask the Lord to teach you something fresh or new or to just speak to your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for that person around you or beside you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. So pray for that person, even if you're here for the first time and that seems a little odd and you don't know their name, just pray for them. Just ask that God would move in them, that they would, be, they would encounter him, that he would meet them where they were. Anything that you can think of, just be in the habit of caring about the spiritual movement of the people around you. So pray for your husband or your wife or that person you don't know. Just, just pray that God would move in them. Lord, we ask this morning that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that you would be lifted up. We believe you, we trust you, we put our hope in you, for you are the King of kings, you are the King eternal. Speak to our heart this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So picking up in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, let's look at verse, we're actually going to read last week's verses also, starting 7, just because they, they're attached together. Again, there is no punctuation, so it's kind of arbitrary where these numbers that we have that our verses get put in there. But I want you to hear it together because last week's stuff that I just talked about, this idea of transformation, this idea of forgiveness, these things that have been lavished on us, they're going to inform what we're going to learn this week. So let's look 7 through 8, and then we're going to really explore 9 and 10 this morning. 
So in him, right, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even that of Christ. So this is what Paul is saying in those kind of verses that we tagged in together. Last week we talked about this idea that we've been given certain things in the grace of Christ, right? We've been given redemption, and that redemption was costly. We see that in verse 7. We've been given forgiveness of sins, even though we have transgressed against God's law. We've been lavished with his, with his grace, with all wisdom and understanding. So we have this, this beautiful picture of what is ours in Christ, and we surrender our hearts to Jesus, this floodgate of grace that is sort of opened up and spilled all over us that we get. And it gives us access to some very specific things, redemption, forgiveness, right? The, the lavishness of God's grace. But it also opens up the door to some really important things that Paul goes on to tell us in 9 and 10. We're going to see three of them. The first one we see comes in verse 9 where it says this, that this grace that we just talked about, this redeeming grace, this freeing grace that has been lavished on us, right? It has made known to us the mystery of his will. So what, one of the things that we have when we encounter the grace of Christ, right, this lavished, forgiving, redeeming grace, is that in doing so, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. And you know what the idea of mystery is, right? It's the idea that there was something or there is something that is a little bit unknown to us. Like there's something out there that seems like we're one step or two steps removed from how it actually happened or happens, right? I don't have all the answers. Now, anybody ever have anything like that happen in your life? I've got one. So yesterday, I started getting texts from people in the church that say, hey, Treb, you know you're text messaging all of us, right? And I said, I'm sorry? They said, yeah, you're sending us text messages that say you need our help. And I said, oh, this is just super awesome, right? Because I already know where this is headed because about four years ago, some of my email got hacked and people got email messages saying they were me and they weren't me, right? So I get these wonderful phone calls or text messages from two people in particular. I don't know how many of you got it, but from, from Emily Forte and from Wendy Schreffler. And I'll use Wendy as my example because she just love, I love Wendy and I love Emily, but I'll take it out on Wendy because Wendy's Don's wife, right? <laughs> so Wendy basically sends me this message and she says, Hey, just so you know, I'm always available for you, but I'm not sure this is really you, all right? This is what she gets. Hi, Wendy. This is a text message, by the way. Hi, Wendy. I pray that you and your family are safe and well. Don, how's she doing okay? Everybody doing okay? I don't know. Wendy, I know her and Don, and so pray that you and your family are well. Do you have a moment? <laughs> I've got a request that I need you to handle discreetly. I'm currently busy in a prayer session. No calls, just texts. Pastor Treb prayer. Let me tell you a few things about me um, and Wendy for the most part. I do hope her family is safe and well. That's always true. If I have a discreet request, like I need to bury a body or dispose of a bag of cocaine or, you know, move some things across straight lines, not going to Wendy Schreffler. I'll go to Brandon, the dude is shady as I'll get out. Probably Scott Looney. I got a few people in here I'd call. 
but I am not calling Wendy Schreffler. So in all of the discretion of what it might need to happen, right? Sorry, Wendy, that's not on my list. But here's the best part, right? As if we just couldn't make her feel a little lower. I am currently on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. in a prayer session, right? And I can't receive phone calls from people like you. But I can receive texts because apparently texts don't interrupt the Holy Spirit. It is just the phone calls which I do not have time for. So call me at this number, which of course is not my number, and we will work out whatever details of the gift cards I'm assuming I need in your name to be given to me in small denominations sent to a P.O. box in India, somewhere, or Africa, or wherever. But just so you know, Wendy, I need you, but not enough for you to call me, so you just stay with the peasants while I'm in my prayer session. Cannot be disturbed, Pastor Treb Prater, right? So I'm reading this, and about that time, Emily texts me and goes, hey, you need me? I'm like, no, but thank you. Again, probably not someone I would call to dispose of my my, uh, discreet things. Now, how all this happens, I don't know. A few years ago, an email's got hacked and some things got, I don't know, my contacts are out there on the dark web with all my personal pictures, who knows? But if you get this, right, if I ever need you, Right? I will either call you or you're allowed to call me back. That's just rule number one. But I am not, you should know also, at college football, Saturday morning, I'm not in a prayer session. That is a guarantee. You're like, look, I know my pastor, he ain't that spiritual. I'll be real honest with you. He is not all that. So I can for sure tell you that. And he never refers to himself as Pastor Treb Prater or the right reverend or archbishop or whatever. Those titles aren't mine. So mysteries are things that are out there, right? That we don't have any clamorings on how they happen, but we're all one step, to, one step away from actually knowing what they are. And in Paul's day, mystery was really tied to religion a lot. It was a very popular idea. And there were a lot of mystery religions. And what those religions were, were they were spiritual ideas that you could have access to only if you got within the inner workings of whatever that religion was. So you had to get within the threshold, within the the inner boundary, the inner sanctum, if you will. And once you did, you had access to either secret knowledge or secret ideas or special rituals. And these mystery religions were built around the idea that you were always striving for whatever that next layer of something was. And the enticement was, as I go farther and farther into this thing, I get more and more information and more and more is revealed to me, and the mystery becomes clearer, right? Which is really how a lot of world religions and especially cults operate. They operate in this idea of there is this inner sanctum of secrets that you only get access to or knowledge that you only have access to as you work your way slowly into it. Scientology, Mormonism, you can go through a whole bunch of them. You do not get access from day one to the whole scope of thinking. You have to work your way into that inner sanctum, right? What Paul says is that he actually breaks down the entire dichotomy of the idea of a mystery by attaching this idea of God has made known. So he says, God has made known the mystery of his will. What that means is that through this redeeming, forgiving, freeing, lavished upon in all wisdom and understanding grace, God has done something very important, and he has opened and made known the floodgates of his will. The mystery that once was is no longer. That everything is open to us in Christ. Right, And this is really, really important because this is a lot of what separates Christianity from other world religions or other religious cults is that if you are here for the very first time today, 
You have never heard about Jesus. You are just now hearing me talking about him. Everything in the Christian faith is open to you today. There is not some secret knowledge. There is not another level. There is not a deeper moment. Everything that we have is fully recorded, written, and available in the word of God. All the movement of discipleship, my entire story and testimony, as of every other believers in here, is open to you. You do not have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. The floodgates of God's grace has opened up the entire mystery of God's redemptive plan to every single person. That means there is nothing hidden. There's no parlor tricks. There's no smoke and mirrors. It is all just laid out for you through Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying every other world religion is going to try and draw you in with the promise of something better or deeper. But Christianity, it all is yours. Every part of it. He has made known the mystery of his will through Christ. And what is his will? That you would know Christ. That you would know him. Right? This is God's will literally for you, that you would know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death as so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul says in Philippians. The mystery of God's will is simply flayed open in Christ for you. So what God has done for us through Christ's death by opening this redeeming, forgiving grace is that he has taken all these other things and he said, everything is open to you. There is no mystery. I love you. I have come for you. I want to redeem and forgive you in Christ. And he has made known the mystery of his will. The second thing that we see comes right on the heels of that. So he has made known the mystery of his will. Keep going in that verse 9. He has done this according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times have reached their fulfillment. What that means is that in his good pleasure, right, in God's great joy and movement, in his good pleasure, right, he has brought about his plan to pass at exactly the right time. So God has done all of these things, this opening, this revealing of these mysteries through Christ. He has done them at the exact right time, in the exact right way, and at the exact right moment. And he has done it in his good pleasure. Now, if you think about that for a moment, right, what that means is that everything that God has done, he has done with purpose and he has done with intention and he has done to bring about in this moment, meaning there are no accidents, there were no mishaps. God has worked everything according to his plan and we can have questions, right? And if we really let our questions lead for themselves, we have a lot of things like, well, God, why after the fall did Adam and Eve and have to wait thousands of years before Christ? And why did Jesus come in the Middle East? And why did we have to have salvation through the death of his son? And why do all these things have to happen? Well, the short and powerful and real answer is because in God's great pleasure, he brought all those things to pass at the right time and the right way according to his perfect will, which means we don't know, but we know that they're perfectly orchestrated and laid out, that God's plan for redemption is thought out and it is perfect. And what it means is that we can trust him. It wasn't just like, well, I guess it's good enough time. I guess Jesus can come now. It's better now than never. I mean, God orchestrated and ordained redemptive history. If you just read the whole of Scripture from Genesis up until the birth of Christ, what you are going to see is a beautiful ordering of God's redemptive movement, drawing in all these layers of history and theology into this crowning moment of Christ. 
all done with beautiful intention. And if God has orchestrated that redemption out on that level, think about how he thinks of your life. Is there anything haphazard or accidental that unfolds in you? Scripture tells us there's not. Scripture tells us that everything is brought about by God's beautiful and perfect will according to his pleasure and brought in under his great and perfect timing. What that means is that if we can trust God with the movements of history, with creation, with the fall, with the redemption, with Christ, with the promise of his return, then we can trust him with our lives. That when that diagnosis comes, when family times struggle, right, when those things at work unfold, when the attack on your reputation happens, when the enemy tries to convince the church that you're super spiritual through a bunch of text messages, right, when all those things happen, God is still at work. He is still moving. We can trust the God that has ordered everything under his perfect and right time to care about your life. He is never absent. And Paul's reminding the church that when they're sitting in this place of struggle and fear and persecution, that God's redemptive plan is not passed them by. This is Paul riding from house arrest in Rome, waiting to set foot and tr- set trial in front of Caesar, which he know will ultimately end in his death. <clears throat> Yet Paul fully trusts that in God's great pleasure, he brought his plan to pass at exactly the right time. What that means for you and what it means for me is that whatever we're walking through today is not a mystery to God. He's not surprised by it. He's working these things according to his perfect time and bringing them to pass according to his perfect will. As challenging and as difficult as these times may be, God is not surprised by them, right? And he's not thrown off by them. Like, whoa, I can't believe that's happening to Trev. Man, that's crazy. He knows And he's allowing those things in his good pleasure because he's got an incredible plan of redemption. Now, we can't always answer the whys in life. The whys are really hard. Why did God wait so long to send Christ? What happened in all those moments before there? Why does death exist? Why is cancer a real thing? Why do my coworkers make more money? I I don't know. But what I do know is that God promises and shows us in Scripture and throughout history that he is fully and totally capable and at work and that he is totally sovereign. And if I can trust him with the movement of Christ in history, I can trust him with my life. If I can trust him that he promises to redeem me and forgive me and restore and redeem my life and lavish grace upon me with wisdom and understanding, why can't I trust him with my Tuesday? Like, really? If I believe that God sent his son to die on a cross that I might be redeemed and forgiven and I can't give him the struggles in my marriage? Are you kidding? Yet I trust him with the movements of the stars? but not with my bank account. What Paul's reminding the church is no matter what the circumstance you're sitting in, in God's perfect pleasure, right, according to his will, and his will is always right, he is bringing things to pass at exactly the right time and exactly the right way. And as hard as that may be to swallow sometimes, it's incredibly comforting, meaning you are not alone. God knows and God is always at work. So when we open up the floodgates of God's grace, right, when he does that through Christ, he reveals the mystery of his will and he reminds us that in his good pleasure, all things, right, at all times are being brought to pass at exactly the right time. And then he wraps up that little section by saying this, right? So he says, he has lavished on us that wisdom and understanding and that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed, 
right, in Christ to be put into effect when all things have reached their fulfillment, meaning under his perfect timing. All things have reached fulfillment. Then he he ends that little section with this, to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head. And that head, of course, is Christ. So God has opened these floodgates to do something very specific, and that is to bring all things of heaven and earth under one head or in unity in Christ. So what I tell you, if you remember, well, you may remember, I've just mentioned what the overarching theme of Ephesians is, that God has reconciled the world to himself, and he has brought that creation, that reconciled creation together, unified as the church. That's the movement that is played out in Ephesians. And so what we see Paul reminding this church here, which in Ephesus is made up of Jews and Gentiles and all kinds of backgrounds and histories and stories, people that have come to know Christ over Paul's teaching there for two and a half years and his leaving of Timothy behind, this great kind of, kind of conglomerate of people, right? This hodgepodge, this melting pot, this thing of people. He's saying that what God has done by opening the floodgates of redemption and forgiveness is he is bringing creation under one roof, one roof of Christ and under his lordship and under his headship. And it's both personal and it's for the church. And this is what he's meaning. He's saying essentially that what God has done through Christ, he is bringing Christ in and being, making Christ fully Lord. We are under the lordship of Christ. And that's a personal directive. So for you and I, I've talked about this a lot over the years. What that means is that essentially I can say that Jesus Christ is God's son. I can say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But when I go to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, I'm saying something entirely different. I can claim that Jesus is God's son and that he is the chosen one, he is the Messiah, and all those things, I can mean them and they can be true. But when I proclaim that Jesus is Lord, I'm doing something very different. I am proclaiming that he is Lord, not over, all over the world, but literally over my life. I am proclaiming his lordship. Meaning that my life is no longer mine. I am surrendering myself to him. I am dying to me, death to self. And I'm surrendering to the lordship of Christ personally. So I can very much articulate a truth that Jesus is Christ without saying that Jesus is my Lord. And the entire movement of Christianity and your personal Christianity depends on your surrender to the idea that Jesus is Lord. Because we can articulate it in church all we want to by coming in here saying, sure, Jesus was the Son of God. But until we articulate the truth that Jesus is my Lord, we've yet to surrender our life to the saving grace of Christ. Jesus is Lord, meaning he is Lord of my life. I am surrendering to him and he is Lord of all the different pieces, not just the ones I want to give him, but every single one. My marriage, my finances, my children, right? My work, my life, all the things that I do, my thought process, who I am, his directives, they're all his. I will go where he sends me. It's the Isaiah, here I, here I am, send me. It is my life is now hidden in Christ. It is Paul saying, I have died to myself and I am alive in Christ. I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's all of those things rolled into the idea that, Jesus, you are my Lord. Therefore, you get all of me. There is nothing in me that is not yours. I surrender completely to you. The reconciliation that God is doing through Christ is to bring the individual to the, under the lordship of Jesus. Meaning the first question that we have to deal with as believers is, am I surrendering my heart to Jesus as Lord? Which means he gets every single thing, even the things I can't control, even the things that are so fearful to me, even the governance and the leading of my children, the directions of my marriage, where we're going to live, where we go, he gets 
all of it, and I trust him with it because he is sovereign and he is working, right? We've seen it throughout history. We've seen his movement. I can trust him with my life, right? It's that same circle of things. So God, through this floodgates of grace, is bringing us, reconciling us to himself under the lordship of Christ, but he's also bringing creation together under the headship of Christ, and we know that to be a movement of the church, So God is calling all of these individual people that he has claimed and they have surrendered their lives to him as we talked about the past few weeks and is bringing them into one unified group called the church of which Christ is the head. Headship, right, is the next step in that idea of lordship, meaning that Jesus is my Lord and as we all gather together saying Jesus is my Lord, we come together as one unified church in which Jesus is the head of a bunch of people who claim that Jesus is Lord. So the church is the movement of understanding that because you believe in Jesus as Lord, and I believe as Jesus as Lord, and you do too, that we are all together and he is the head of all of us. That we surrender to the headship of Christ. Think about the metaphor, right? It's Paul's going to talk about it later on in this book, what the body looks like, hands and feet and all these things. But it, unequivocally, Jesus is always the head. You know why that is? There's really two reasons and are two ways to understand this in terms of the church. The first is in terms of source, and the second is in terms of submission. So if we think about the head as source, right? What is the source of all life in terms of just, just pure anatomy, right? It's got to be the head. The head is what sends directives out to the body. The head is what holds all things together. It does the thinking, it does the movement, it does the direction. Without the source, there is no real life right? There are no directives. There are no movements. There is no vision. There is no nothing. The church without Christ as the head is a lifeless body. No direction, no movement, nothing. That if we surrender to the headship of Christ, what we are saying is that he is the source of all of our life together. When you talk about a dead church or a church that is dying, what you are really saying is that you have found a body of believers that does does no longer or no longer has Christ as its head. It has substituted the headship of Christ for the headship of a person or an organization or some pervasive, secular, worldly movement. And what happens? The church begins to die. How do we know this? Well, it's pretty blatant in John chapter 15 where he talks about that Jesus is the vine, right? Literally, apart from him, we can do nothing. There's nothing that's alive that's not attached to the living vine. And a church that doesn't have Christ as the head, as its source of life, is dead. In the process of dying, withering, to be used only for the throwing away and the burning of ashes. Churches that die typically have surrendered their head. They've substituted it typically with someone else. Somebody that's written a bunch of books, plays guitar really well, has a zillion followers on a podcast, and they celebritize and worship the head that is no longer Christ. That person gets all kinds of power, all kinds of authority, and all kinds of directives mistakenly bestowed upon them that should go to Christ. This is not your church. This is not my church. It's not even close to my church. This is the Christ church of which we are all a part. Every member minister. So we surrender to the source as part of our headship. And then the second thing in there is we surrender to this idea of submission. That the church is called to submit to the authority of its head. Headship is an actual term of authority. We believe that Christ knows more than I do. 
right, or more than you do. He knows more than us. He is God. Therefore, we give our power over to him. Like, he can lead this better than me. He can lead this better than you. He is God. He can do all things better than us. He knows all things. He is all things. And in him, all things hold together. So therefore, we submit and surrender to his authority as not only the source of our life, but as the authority in which we trust and believe that he will lead and lead well. Because he knows all things. And exactly the right time and exactly the right moment, he brings his plan to pass according to his good pleasure because he is God. So when we submit to the authority of the headship of Christ, we are saying, not what I want, but what you want. In other words, it's not my vision that leads us forward. It's not your desire that moves the church or what you think a church should be. It is purely the movement and headship of Christ. Now, here's the beauty of, and the complication of God all rolled into one. He uses broken people. He attaches them to this head Instead of just being a floating head up there saying, do this and do that, he attaches all these crazy things, right, to the head, and he says, I'm going to direct you all. And you got elbows and arms and weird skin down here and a black hair that comes out of the shoulder. And like, who's that? I don't know. Probably Brandon, right? All these weird things that make up this movement of the body that are so beautiful when brought together under the headship of Christ. Lose the head, it's a crazy chicken running around the yard right? And that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, if you can trust, right, this God who has orchestrated all of history, trust him with your life and trust him with the church. So when the floodgates of God's grace have opened, right, these are the things we have access to. He has has opened up the mystery of his will. There is nothing that is hidden. All the divine truths are available to you in God's word, every single one of them. There is no second level to Christianity. You are in the inner sanctum right now. Everything is at your fingertips. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't grow and don't mature, but the information is all there, every part of it. There's nothing hidden, right? And in his perfect timing, as only God can do, in his deep and real and good pleasure, he's brought all things to pass perfectly and will do so even in your life. And finally, in that movement of things that are opened, right, that we have seen, he is bringing all that reconciled creation under the lordship of Christ personally and under the headship of Christ as the church, that we surrender to him. He is our Lord. And as a church, he is our head. All things are his. If he wants to disassemble this church tomorrow, it is his right. He is the head. He is my Lord. I will always and forever surrender to him. That's our call together. And this is the beauty of what it means to be the church. We're all in this thing together under the greatest and most beautiful leader imaginable, the one that offers redemption and forgiveness and lavishes us with grace that defies wisdom and understanding of our own but is done with his beautiful wisdom and understanding. And there's probably no better picture of that than this table, right? We celebrate communion as that orchestrated picture of God's incredible and beautiful grace. It is his love poured out for us. And this morning as we celebrate this table, I want you to remember that this is the expression that we just read about. This is the mystery of his grace literally laid open for us on full display. This is the beauty of his redemption and his forgiveness. 
And Jesus, on that very night that he gathered his disciples, the night that he would betray, that all would flee apart, run for, run for the hills, the night that everyone would depart from him and he would stand a sham of a trial, the very night that he was betrayed, he would gather with his disciples and after dinner he would recline at them with the table. And after giving thanks, he took a loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you proclaim or take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I return again. This table is not a denominational table. It is open to all those who surrender their hearts and lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of what church history or denomination you were raised or brought up in. It is open to those who profess a saving grace in Christ and have given their hearts to him. And we take this together as a family, as a church under the headship of Christ. This morning, as we do each week we're going to, or each month, we're going to be taking communion as a means of intinction, which is you take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and you eat it, and you return to your seats. We'll have two stations, one down front and one in the back. We encourage you to remain standing after you're done so that we can close our time in worship together. But this is God's grace on full display. This is the mystery made known. I'm about our service to come forward and let's pray together this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. We ask that you would be exalted and lifted up. We ask that you would be the source of our joy and our strength and our comfort. We ask God that you would be on full display, that as we surrender our hearts and our lives to your lordship, that you would remind us of your power and your beauty and your grace, all rolled into one beautiful picture of redeeming, freeing love. And as we celebrate this together, this meal, this picture, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would unite our hearts together as the church under one head, Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to come forward as you feel called and ready. Celebrating these meals, we also have a station in the back, and then we will continue our worship together this morning. I find thy 
change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone for Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow and when before the throne I stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow.
my own sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow let's pray together lord we thank you for the joy of knowing you as our lord and savior we thank you for the promise that comes in knowing christ lord we thank you for the reality that comes the unveiling of this incredible mystery that is now all known through your will. Lord, we thank you that you are redeemer of our soul and that you have brought us freedom and redemption through your blood. As we close our time in worship this morning, let's be reminded that this is the great and promise of Christ, that we are united to him, reconciled through his death, lavished with his grace, and that the floodgates of his grace have opened us to an opportunity to see the fullness of God, his perfect in movement and beautiful purpose in history. We surrender to his lordship and unite under his headship, for he is our savior and our redeemer. Let's close our time in worship this morning. have seen salvation from the Lord prepared for all revealed for me to see what once was hidden no longer mystery light has come the glory of our King my eyes have seen the power of the Lord. His mighty arm exposed for all to see. He is redemption. He's come for you and me. Victory is here. The glory of our
quick reminder, we will be here next week, even though half of us will be out on retreat. We're going to be continuing the book of Ephesians. I will be here, so come on, be a part of what we have. It'll be a fun, great morning. We'll have a guest worship leader. Don will be out leading worship with our retreat family, um, but we'd love for you to make sure that you're part of this Sunday as well. So pray for those folks that are going on retreat, and then join us next Sunday. But take these truths today to be evident in your life, to let them impact the way that you think and the way that you move, to truly trust and believe that God is at work. All things are open in him, that he has done things throughout history that we can trust, and therefore he is trustworthy for your life. He is bringing all things to pass according to his perfect timing and great pleasure, and that he is our Lord. And together, right, we live and we serve under that headship of Christ to be his hands and feet in the world. Go in peace.